I'd like to use this occasion to say something I've been wishing to say for a long time. We are accustomed to saying, and it's true, that we believe young people learn more from our conduct as parents and adults than they do from the lessons we deliberately undertake to teach them. They acquire the quality of integrity, not so much from pronouncements as from observing and associating with people in whom integrity is the established norm. Young people are apt to imitate what we really are, not what we say we are or even what we may believe we are. No lesson is more important than the example of a life of integrity, of solid honesty, of responsible citizenship. But this is not to question the vital importance of the privilege we have as parents and adults to share our knowledge and understanding, our deeply held convictions with our children and others of the young generation, nor does it excuse us from the sacred obligation to do so. The lessons we learned at Mother's Knee remain clear and dear to us. The understanding gained from Father's counsel sinks deep in the soul. We have the responsibility not to deny our children, for whatever reason, the chance to learn from us those principles which form a foundation for whatever is good in us. Those familiar with the scriptures are aware that many of the most powerful and personally helpful teachings of the sacred records are from parents to their own children, often from fathers to sons. It's been particularly vital to me since I did not have the blessing of knowing my own father before he died in my infancy, to discover what it was that parents, fathers especially, were anxious to have their sons learn, to feel the deep intensity of their desire to make known in thought and feelings to their own children what had become so greatly important to them. One powerful and motivating example of a father's instructions to his children is the series of chapters in which Alma shares with his sons the profoundest lessons of his own life. From his experiences, good and bad, for he had both like the rest of us, there were certain crucial convictions which he was anxious to teach. Of three such matters, this humble man speaks in a strong and tender testimony to his son, Helaman, repeats the witness to his other children. My son, he said, thou art in thy youth, and therefore I beseech of thee that thou wilt hear my words and learn of me. For I do know that whosoever shall put their trust in God shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions and shall be lifted up at the last day. I would not that ye think that I know of myself, not of the temporal, but of the spiritual, not of the carnal mind, but of God. For it is the Spirit of God which is in me, which maketh these things known unto me. For if I had not been born of God, I should not have known these things. And never until I did cry out unto the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy did I receive a remission of my sins. But I did cry unto him, and I did find peace to my soul. And I have been supported under trials and troubles of every kind, yea, and in all manner of afflictions. And I do put my trust in him, and he will still deliver me. Now, my son, I have told you this, that you may learn wisdom, that you may learn of me that there is no other way or means whereby man can be saved, only in and through Christ. 
Behold, he is the life and the light of the world. Behold, he is the word of truth and righteousness. That was this father's great witness to his sons, the first of three, that he knew in the only way men can know, that is, through the Spirit, that God lives, that Jesus is the Christ, and that through him the penitent can be born again. There is a second matter of which Alma testified to his son, that from the time of his own witness from the Lord, he said, I have labored without ceasing that I might bring souls unto repentance, that I might bring them to taste of that exceeding joy of which I did taste, that they might also be born of God and be filled with the Holy Ghost. My son, the Lord, doth give me exceeding great joy in the fruit of my labor. For because of the word which he has imparted unto me, many have been born of God and have tasted as I have tasted and have seen eye to eye as I have seen. Therefore, they do know of these things of which I have spoken as I do know. The knowledge which I have is of God. Because he knew many others had received the same blessing. He had become a willing and effective instrument in the hands of God to bring others to a knowledge of the truth. But... This was not enough for Alma, as indeed it is not for any man who has a witness by the Spirit and who loves someone very much. Thus he had a third vital message to deliver. But behold, my son, this is not all. For ye ought to know as I do know. Why, of course. It isn't enough for any loving father that he has the witness himself, nor enough that he's helped others to gain a knowledge of true principles. He cannot be truly content unless those he loves best also know. It is with every true father as with Israel of old. If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And with Judah, how shall I go up to my father and the lad be not with me? These then were the vital matters which Alma had to be sure his sons understood. He taught them many related truths, many wonderful principles, but none more important. He knew, through the graciousness and mercy of God, he knew. Through him others had been taught, but this wasn't enough. His son, too, must know. That same testimony I bear today to my own son and daughters. I do know that God lives and that Jesus is the Christ. Because I know, some others have had a chance to learn. But this is not enough, my children. You must know for yourselves. And there is something more I would add that you must know. Alma understood in a special personal way the marvelous blessing of the forgiveness of God. It is recorded that in his youth there was, youth, there was a land in the land, a climate of unbelief, of spiritual darkness. Many of the rising generation did not believe the tradition of their fathers. They did not believe what had been said concerning the resurrection of the dead. Neither did they believe concerning the coming of Christ. And now because of their unbelief, they could not understand the word of God, and their hearts were hardened. They would not be baptized, neither would they join the church, nor would they call upon the Lord their God. Alma, son of a prophet. And his friends, sons of a righteous king, partook of the spirit of rebellion and used their special gifts and talents to destroy faith. He and they became a great hindrance to the prosperity of the church of God, stealing away the hearts of the people, 
causing much dissension, giving a chance for the enemy of God to exercise his power over them. They experienced after a time the suffering and sorrow that inevitably follow such a course. Through God's mercy and because of the fasting and prayers of their fathers, priesthood leaders, and the people, which the record makes clear. And after sore repentance, which involved torment and pain so keen and intense as to almost destroy them, they learned, too, the blessing of repentance and forgiveness and the healing power of faith. They turned their lives around, were forgiven, and thereafter devoted full energy to trying to rectify their misdeeds in, in doing good. There's a wonderful description in the record of the program through which these former companions on the wrong road had now become strong in the knowledge of the truth, for they were men of a sound understanding. They had searched the scriptures diligently that they might know the word of God. But this is not all. They had given themselves to much prayer and fasting. Therefore, they had the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation. And when they taught, they taught with power and authority of God. It's important now, as it's always been, that every man go to with his might, take righteousness in his hands and faithfulness upon his loins, and lift a warning voice unto the inhabitants of the earth, every man to his neighbor in mildness and meekness. And that each of us remember that among our neighbors or those of our own households who must know for themselves. Alma's father had a witness, but that wasn't sufficient for Alma. Enos's father knew and taught him, but not until Enos' soul hungered and he cried to his maker in mighty prayer and supplication did he gain the witness. The summation of this testimony to you from the past and from your father, my son, is this, that I know that God lives and that we're his children. You and I are contemporaries in the eternal sense. I understand and know that our Heavenly Father delights in exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, that he will sustain the, his children in their joys and in their afflictions. Because this knowledge has come to me from God through the Spirit, others also know and have tasted of the sweetness and joy of that knowledge. But you too must know. Knowing you'll be a better man than you could otherwise be, a better man than your father. You'll be, as one wrote 600 years ago, more concerned to possess true humility and live a virtuous life and thus please your heavenly father than to discourse profoundly about him. You will prefer to feel contrition rather than know how to define it. God bless you and all sons and daughters everywhere that each of you will seek to fashion a life of service and sacred devotion. Give genuine love and choose that course of discipleship that may require yet all we have to give. May your life be rich through personal experience with that love of God which is manifested through Christ Jesus and from which nothing but yourself can separate you. God bless you to be actively engaged in a good work but not be content to let the gospel light be hidden under a bushel of activities designed to keep you harmlessly busy, but that you will find and feast on the bread of life and share it. I testify that God lives and Jesus is the Christ and this is his work. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. That's a long Long walk. My brothers and sisters, my heart is full.
I believe more than anything else, I would like to truly express my love for my Father in heaven. I thought this morning, as my wife said to me early, are you ready for today? Those words have seemed to ring in my mind all day, as I've realized that if I'm not, it's too late. And as I begin to realize more fully that this last 34 years has represented the time for preparation, not today, but that which has gone before the many, many yesterdays, those persons who have been close to me and my family, priesthood leaders, mission presidents, these good brethren of the First Council of the Seventy for whom I have worked for a number of years, I realize that it's in those yesterdays, those many early mornings, those many hours, as has been described here today, that most of the battles are fought and won. I would just share this one thought with you this afternoon, my brothers and sisters. I've had going through my mind something that Brother Sill said that was a paraphrase, I guess, from Alma in a little different way, when Alma said the following, Preach unto them repentance and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach them to humble themselves and be meek and lowly in heart. Teach them to withstand every temptation of the devil with their faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yea, and cry unto God for all thy support. Yea, let all thy doings be unto the Lord, and whithersoever thou goest, let it be in the Lord. Yea, let thy thoughts be directed unto the Lord. Yea, let the affections of thy heart be placed upon the Lord forever. Counsel with the Lord in all thy doings, and he will direct thee for good. Yea, when thou liest down at night, lie down unto the Lord, that he may watch over you in your sleep. And when thou risest in the morning, let thy heart be full of thanks unto God, and if you do these things, ye shall be lifted up at the last day. My brothers and sisters, I bear witness to you that this is the Church of Jesus Christ, that he is at the head, that he is the rock of our salvation, that our affections must be totally placed, all of them, upon the Lord. And I bear witness that if they're placed elsewhere, we will not receive that promise to be lifted up at the last day. I bear my witness with a surety that goes beyond words of those promptings that come that this is the true church of Jesus Christ, the only one upon the face of the whole earth, because the Lord has so declared it. I bear witness that President Kimball is a prophet of God and want to expressed to these good brethren in front of me that I pledge all of the efforts, my time and talents and resources and all that I have for as long as they're desired by the Lord or by these brethren to do whatever they would have me do. And I bear this witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. During the 19th 
1966 leadership meetings held in connection with the quarterly state conference around the church. As one part of the program, someone was assigned to get up in the conference and give two success stories. A success story is a segment of successful experience which might be isolated in one person and made negotiable in the lives of a great many others. It's an interesting part of human personality that each one of us has been endowed by creation with a collector's instinct. That is, as the squirrel collects acorns, so we collect stamps and butterflies and coins and stocks and bonds and insurance policies and real estate and bank accounts. But during these last nine years, since 1966, I have collected 72 success stories. These are segments of the experience of somebody else which I have chiseled and painted and polished and memorized and recorded to make them available for my own personal use. And I thought this afternoon, in the few minutes that uh, I have been allotted, I would like to tell you some success stories. Success story number one. After the assassination of Julius Caesar, the world was divided into two great war camps, one led by the conspirators under Brutus and the other led by Octavius Caesar and Mark Anthony, the friend of Julius Caesar. During the long, hard war that followed, Mark Anthony distinguished himself as the greatest soldier in the world. Now, if we can understand how the secret of his success or anybody else's success we might make it available for our own success bloodstream. Here's a clue that someone has given us as to the success of Mark Anthony. They said, armed with his convincing speech, the power of his logic, the courage of his leadership, and his own self-discipline, he swept everything before him. He took upon himself the hardest tasks with the most wondrous good cheer. He won the loyalty of his men and the acclaim of the people and the support of Octavius and his own self-confidence. But when the need for struggle had passed, Mark Anthony became idle. Now, idleness, I suppose, is one of the greatest failure stories that could ever be written in the world. Mark Anthony went to Egypt and fell in love with the bewitching Queen Cleopatra. He became a victim of the soft luxury, perfumed elegance, and immorality of the Egyptian court. His great mind became clouded by the fumes of wine. And as Mark Anthony abandoned his better self, Plutarch refers to calls him a, a fishing rod general. During the period that followed, Mark Anthony soon lost the loyalty of his men and the acclaim of the people and the support of Octavius and his own self-respect. And finally, a guard of Roman soldiers was sent to take Anthony into custody and bring him back to headquarters in chains. Now, it didn't require a great army to, to take Mark Anthony now. Just a handful of the meanest soldiers was all that was necessary. But Mark Anthony avoided arrest by thrusting a dagger into his own heart. And as he lay dying, he recounted to Cleopatra, that there had been no power in the world sufficient to overthrow him except his own power. He said only Anthony could conquer Anthony. And then as he contemplated the arrival of the Roman soldiers, 
and the great disgrace that he had brought upon his country and the shame and humiliation that he had caused his family. He made his last speech, which William Haynes Little has translated into verse, in which he said to Cleopatra, Let not Caesar's servile minions mock the lion thus laid low. T'was no foeman's arm that felled him, t'was his own hand struck the blow. He who pillowed on thy bosom turned aside from glory's way, when made drunk with thy caresses, madly threw a world away. Now Mark Anthony had in his possession the control of an entire world, and there was no one in the world with sufficient power to take it away from him except himself. Now each one of us has within his easy reach a world that is far more important than that which belonged to Mark Anthony. There is no power in the world that can come between us and the celestial kingdom except our own power. Only Anthony can conquer Anthony. Success story number two comes from John Bunyan's story of Pilgrim Progress. You may remember the story of the man with the muckrake. This man had trained himself and spent his entire lifetime raking unto himself the chaff and dust of the earth. But there was an angel standing over his head with a, with a celestial crown in his hand, offering to exchange the crown for the muckrake. But this man had trained himself to look in no direction but down, and so he disregarded the offer of the angel as he continued to rake unto himself the chaff and dust of the earth. Now there's an angel standing over our heads with a celestial crown in his hand, offering to exchange it for our muckrakes if we can just look up. If we can just look up to God and faith and righteousness and understanding, the beast was put down on all fours, and thus his vision was cast upon the ground. But man was created upright in the image of his Maker, that he might look up to God. We have a song in which we sing, Look up, my soul, be not cast down, cast not thine eyes upon the ground, break off the shackles of the earth. Receive my soul its spirit's birth. And one who did this recalls the experience by saying, I raised my eyes to yonder heights and longed for lifting wings to bear them to bear me to their sunlit crests, as on my spirit sings, and though my feet must keep the path that winds along the valley's floor, yet after every upward glance I'm stronger than before. Success story number three has to do with the lion-hearted King Richard who ruled England in the latter part of the 12th century. Richard organized a crusade to go to the Holy Land to dispossess the Turks of the sepulcher. But the expedition was unsuccessful and Richard himself was, con was captured and confined to a foreign prison. During his absence at home, traitors had taken over the government. And when Richard finally effected his escape and returned to England, it was necessary for reasons of his own personal security that he come disguised in plain, unmarked armor. When back on the shores of England, he quietly gathered around him a few of his faithful followers with the idea of putting England back into the hands of its rightful rulers. After this little group had been assembled, the first thing he did was to attack, attack the castle at Torkelstone. Torkelstone was a stronghold of the enemy in which Ivanhoe, the faithful follower and, and friend of the king was, impro was imprisoned. 
when Ivanhoe heard the noises of assault begin to take place outside the castle, and because of wounds and loss of blood, he was unable to raise himself from his couch. He asked his nurse, Rebecca, to stand by the window and tell him what was taking place. And the first thing he wanted to know was who the leader was. Now, that's the first thing that anybody wants to know about anything. And so Ivanhoe asked Rebecca to describe for him the insignia or other marks of identification on the armor of the leader, and then he'd know who he was and what their chances for rescue were. But Rebecca reported back that the leader fought in plain, unmarked armor, and he had no insignia or marks of identification. Then Ivanhoe said, Then tell me how he fights, and then I'll know who he is. Now, everybody has a set of traits about as characteristic as his fingerprints, and the best key to identification is to what he does. So Rebecca tried to, de to describe this great warrior as he swung his ponderous axe with thunderous blows, assaulting this castle stronghold almost single-handed. And here are some of the things that she said about him. She said stones and beams are hurled down from the castle walls upon him, but he regards them no more than if they were thistle-down or feathers. Again, she said he fights as if there were twenty men's strength in his single arm. Again, she said, it is fearful yet magnificent to behold how the arm and heart of one man can triumph over hundreds. Now, I suppose that, I, that the Richard's arm wasn't greatly stronger than any other warrior's arm, but that isn't where strength comes from. Rebecca had said the arm and heart of one man. Richard was fighting with his heart. He was fighting for England. Now, when anybody begins to put his heart in what he's doing, then things really begin to happen. Ivanhoe didn't know who this man was. He knew that Richard fought like this, but nobody fought like Richard, and he believed Richard to be a prisoner in an Austrian dungeon. And so he gave, he made the, gave this great tribute to an unknown warrior. He said to Rebecca, I swear by the honor of my house, I would endure ten years of captivity to fight a single day by that great man's side in such a quarrel as this. Now, captivity would have been the greatest punishment to which Ivanhoe could have been subjected. And yet he said, I would gladly languish ten years in a dungeon cell for the privilege of fighting by the side and under the banner of a great man in a great cause. Now, we have a great cause. We have the greatest cause ever known in the world. And the only question that is left to be answered is, how will we fight? And in our own day, the leader of our of our own leader has given us the answer in which he said, O ye that embark in the service of God, see that ye serve him with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, that ye may stand blameless before God at the last day. And may the Lord help us to collect within ourselves enough of those great success qualities that we might lift ourselves and our families and our friends to him in the celestial kingdom. I sincerely pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'd like to say a few things, my brethren and sisters, about the family home evening. As President Kimball addressed the Stockholm Area Conference, he pointed out the great need of home teaching and family home evening to help neutralize the ills of the world, 
He said the spirit of the times is worldliness. Hoodlamism is common. Supposedly good youth are recognizing or recognized from recognized good families express their revolt in destructive acts. Many defy the and resist the enforcement officers. Respect for authority, secular, religious, and political, seems to be at a low ebb. The world is in turmoil. But in our time, the Lord has offered his ageless program in a new dress to give promise to return the world to sane living and true family life, family interdependence. It is to turn the, return the father to his rightful place as head of the family, to bring the mother home from social life and un, unemployment, the children away from unlimited fun and frolic. The home teaching program with its crowning activities, the ha family home evening, will neutralize the ill effects only if people will apply the remedy, end quote. In the October conference in 1964, President David O. McKay reintroduced the family home evening program assisted, uh, designed to assist parents in teaching the gospel in the home. Since that time, this important program has been emphasized in the church. Monday evenings have been set aside by the entire church for holding family home evenings. A beautiful manual has been prepared each year by an expert staff of writers. Over 907,000 copies of the family home evening manual are printed each year, about, about 830 in English and 77,000 in 17 other languages. They are distributed in 48 countries. In the Family Home Evening Manual of 1973-74, the First Presidency said this, May we remind you of just how important the family unit is in the overall plan of, the, of uh, our Father in Heaven. In fact, the church organization exists to assist the family and its member in, members in reaching exaltation. The primary function of Latter-day Saints homes is to ensure that every family member works to create a climate and condition in which he can grow toward perfection. For the parents, this requires a dedication of time and energy far beyond a mere providing of their children's physical needs. For the children, this means controlling their natural tendencies toward selfishness. Parents and children must be willing to put family responsibilities first in order to achieve family exaltation, end quote. As family home evening, our family home evening program has received national attention, many individuals and groups of individuals and organizations out of the church have written for information on the program and requested the manual. To quote just a few, the Emanuel Lutheran Church of Lincoln, Nebraska wrote, I recently saw a copy of your family home evening manual I was deeply impressed with the quality and the approach of your program. The Trinity Evangelical Divinity School of Deerfield, Illinois wrote, I have recently seen materials on family home evening. I would like very much, I would be very much interested in obtaining copies of any available material, especially the family home evening manual. The State of Oklahoma Health Department wrote, it has been brought to our attention that your church has initiated a program emphasizing family interaction called Family Home Evening. 
we think that the major source of health development arises out of positive family life. We would be pleased if we could share, you could share with us information about your program. Many articles have been written by national and local press praising our efforts. The late Mr. Lewis Cassell of the United Press International wrote the following after visiting a family home evening. A child, and I quote, a child gets his most important religious instruction at home. It is very difficult for Sunday schools or any other agency of the church to communicate Christian faith to boys and girls who haven't been exposed to it through family life. All denominations agree on this. One denomination, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is doing something effective to help families fill their key role in the religious nurture of children. Every Monday, there are in some 350,000 Mormon homes around the world. Parents and children are joining in observing family home evening. The most impressive aspect of the Mormon family home evening to, the outside, to this outside observer is the apparent, natural, unconscious, uh, unwilling way in which the older teenagers participate. LDS President Harold B. Lee is a strong proponent of this home evening concept, he said. He told the Mormon group, a group of Mormon leaders recently, that the most important of the Lord's work will be that which we do within our walls of our own home. President Lee said family home evening is not, uh, family home evenings are own, not only are an invaluable opportunity of religious instruction, they also observe to unite, uh, serve to unite families, to bridge generation gaps, and to maintain communication between parents and children. When the home functions properly, much has been done to prevent problems from happening, Mormon president told UPI. So much that we do, both in the world and in the church, is done to compensate for failure in the home. We have found that family home evening to a family home even to be the great assistance to parents in fostering meaningful and close family relationships, which help the home service sanctuaries from evil influence and as a source of strength to each family member. End quote. Numerous mayors of cities and governors of states have uh, recognized the virtue of family solidarity and know of the soundness of family home evening program. Uh, it, uh, it is, is bringing, the family home evening program is bringing about. Many have issued proclamations declaring a family unity week or month. For example, one wrote this, whereas public officials throughout the United States are gravely concerned about the erosion of the family unit and its effect upon society as a whole, and whereas the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has originated a family home evening program which has received worldwide recognition, the primary purpose of which is to bring the family back together through a weekly family get-together of fun, relaxation, and learning. And whereas good family relationships constitute primar the primary source of strength in our community, now I herefore, now herefore I, Fred Hoffens, mayor of the city of Houston, do hereby proclaim the month of December as Family Unity Month. A copy of another excellent proclamation has been received from the governor of Arizona, who recognized the practice of the church in teaching their children through family home evening. He commended them for this and recognized and recommended such a practice 
to all inhabitants of his state through this proclamation. Whereas the family is the basic and indispensable uh, institution of our society, and whereas we are observing in our nation a breakup of family life at, at a rate unprecedented in history, uh, with serious effects and repercussions in many segments of our society, particularly the welfare of children and the weakening of the single greatest strength of America. And therefore, there is increased concern among all thinking Americans over the dissolution of the family and the effects such destruction pretends for our nation. Therefore, prominent religious leaders have said no success can compensate for failure in the home. And the most important work we can do is within the walls of our own home. Now, therefore, I, Jack Williams, governor of Arizona, do hereby proclaim the week beginning Sunday, June the 2nd, 1974, as Family Week, and do call upon all serious and right-thinking Americans to reflect upon the meaning of family life to themselves, their children, and to their children's children, and to our great nation." End quote. The Church has also received from the Senate of the United States a proclamation from the 93rd Congress commending the members for their, great, their spirit of pioneering, for the wholesome living, for their concern for their fellow men, and, for, the, and their, for their many achievements. President Kimball said these recognitions from government, state, and, and city leaders who are not, members, are not members of the Church are most gratifying. They know what creates uh, nations and governments. They know what destroys cities and state government. They know what, that, that the breakup of the family is the beginning of the fall of an empire. They know well that the dishonesty, immorality, and home-breaking through divorce and infidelity Limited family size and adult preoccupation with entertainment and sex presages the collapse of the government, end quote. I bear you my solemn witness, my brethren and sisters, that this is the work of the Lord, that these brethren who instituted the family homenaming program were greatly inspired. I see as well great inspiration as the, those who prepare the family home manual are directed, and I leave this testimony with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. With appreciation for the tremendous responsibility of speaking from this pulpit, I seek the direction of the Holy Spirit. A young man recently came to see me. He was handsome in appearance, a good student personable but deeply troubled. He announced that he has long been involved in deviant moral activity but has now come to have serious questions about it. What brought this change of attitude, I asked? He pointed to a ring on his little finger. It was a beautiful diamond in a heavy gold setting, a handsome ring which he showed me with pride. It was my grandfather's, he said. In his old age, he gave it to my father, who was his eldest son, and my father gave it to me, my, his, his eldest son. The other night, I was with a friend of my own kind, and he, knowing the story of my ring, asked, To whom will you give it? I guess you're the last one. I was shaken by that, he continued. I had never thought of it before. Where am I going, I asked myself. 
I'm walking down a blind alley where there is neither light nor hope nor future. I suddenly realized I need help. We talked of the influences that had put him where he is, of the home from which he came, of associations with other young men, of books and magazines read, of shows seen. He spoke of many friends in similar circumstances or worse. As I walked from my office toward my home that evening, I could not get from my mind the tragic figure of that young man, now finding himself face to face with the fact that for so long as he continued with his present pattern, he would never have a son of his own to whom he might someday pass his grandfather's ring. The bleakness of his future had brought him pleading for help. Following dinner, I picked up the morning paper, which I had not previously read. Thumbing through its pages, my eyes stopped on the theater ads, many of them an open appeal to witness that which is debauching, that which leads to violence and sex. I turned to my mail and found a small magazine which lists the television fare for the coming week and saw titles of shows aimed in the same direction. A news magazine lay on my desk. This particular issue was devoted to the rising crime rate, with a graph showing that while the population increased only 11%, from 1963 to 1973, violent crime had increased a shocking 174%. Articles in the magazine spoke of additional billions for increased police forces and larger prisons. The flood of pornographic filth, the inordinate emphasis on sex and violence are not peculiar to this land. The situation is as bad in Europe and in many other areas. News stories tell of the production in Denmark of a filthy, erotic, and blasphemous movie to be produced on the life of the Son of God. The whole dismal picture indicates a weakening rot seeping into the very fiber of our society. Our legislators and courts are affected by this wave. Legal restraints against deviant moral behavior are eroding under legislative enactments and court opinions. This is done in the name of freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of choice in so-called personal matters. But the bitter fruit of these so-called freedoms has been enslavement to debauching habits and behavior that leads only to destruction. A prophet speaking long ago aptly described the process when he said, And thus the devil cheateth their souls and leadeth them away carefully down to hell. On the other hand, I am satisfied that there are millions upon millions of good people in this and other lands. For the most part, husbands are faithful to wives and wives to husbands. Their children are being reared in sobriety, industry, and faith in God. Given the strength of these, I am one who believes that the situation is far from hopeless. I am satisfied that there is no need to stand still and let the filth and violence overwhelm us or to run in despair. The tide, high and menacing as it is, can be turned back if enough of the kind I have mentioned will add their strength 
to the strength of the few who are now effectively working. I believe the challenge to oppose this evil is one from which members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints cannot shrink. And if we are ever to begin, let it be now. In that spirit, I should like to suggest four points of beginning. The first, begin with yourself. Reformation of the world begins with reformation of self. It is a fundamental article of our faith that we believe in being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, and virtuous. We cannot hope to influence others in the direction of virtue unless we live vice lives of virtue. <clears throat> the example of our lives will carry a greater influence than will all the preaching in which we might indulge. We can never expect to lift others unless we stand on higher ground ourselves. Respect for self is the beginning of virtue in men. That man who knows that he is a child of God, created in the image of a divine Father, and gifted with a potential for the exercise of great and godlike virtues, will discipline himself against the sordid, lascivious elements to which all are exposed. Said Alma to his son Helaman, Look to God and live. It is a matter of more than passing interest that the Lord, as he spoke to the multitude on the mount, included this marvelous declaration. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. A wise man once said, Make of yourself an honest man, and there will be one fewer rascals in the world. And it was Shakespeare who put into one of the mouths into the mouth of one of his great characters this persuasive injunction To thine own self be true, and it must follow as the night the day thou canst not then be false to any man. I should like to give to every man within the sound of my voice a challenge to lift his thoughts above the filth to discipline his acts into an example of virtue, to control his words that he speak only that which is uplifting and leads to growth. And now my second point of beginning. A better tomorrow begins with the training of a better generation. This places upon parents the responsibility to do a more effective work in the rearing of children. The home is the cradle of virtue, the place where character is formed and habits are established. The home evening is the opportunity to teach the ways of the Lord. You know that your children will read. They will read books, and they will read magazines and newspapers. Cultivate within them a taste for the best. While they're very young, read to them the great stories which have become mortal, immortal because of the virtues they teach. Expose them to good books. Let there be a corner somewhere in your house, be it ever so small, where they will see at least a few of the books of the kind upon which great minds have been nourished. Let there be good magazines about the house, those which are produced by the Church and by others, which will stimulate their thoughts to ennobling concepts. Let them read a good family newspaper that they know what is going on in the world without being exposed 
to the debasing advertising and writing so widely found. When there's a good show in town, go to the theater as a family. Your very patronage will give encouragement to those who wish to produce this type of entertainment. And use that most remarkable of all tools of communication, television, to enrich their lives. There is so much that is good, but it requires selectivity. President Kimball spoke yesterday of the efforts of the television networks to present in primetime evening hours suitable family entertainment. Let those who are responsible for this effort know of your appreciation for that which is good and also of your displeasure with that which is bad. In large measure, we get what we ask for. The problem is that so many of us fail to ask and more frequently fail to express gratitude for that which is good. Let there be music in the home. If you have teenagers who have their own recordings, you will be prone to describe the sound as something other than music. Let them hear something better occasionally. Expose them to it. It will speak for itself. More of appreciation will come than you may think. It may not be spoken, but it will be felt, and its influence will become increasingly manifest as the years pass. Now my third point of beginning. The building of public sentiment begins with a few earnest voices. I am not one to advocate shouting defiantly or shaking fists and issuing threats in the faces of legislators but I am one who believes that we should earnestly and sincerely and positively express our convictions to those given the heavy responsibility of making and enforcing our laws. The sad fact is that the minority who call for greater liberalization, who peddle and devour pornography, who encourage and feed on licentious display, make their voices heard until those in our legislatures may come to believe that what they say represents the will of the majority. We are not likely to get that which we do not speak up for. Let our voices be heard. I hope they will not be shrill voices, but I hope we shall speak with such conviction that those to whom we speak shall know of the strength of our feeling and the sincerity of our effort. Remarkable consequences often flow from a well-written letter and a postage stamp. Remarkable results come of quiet conversation with those who carry heavy responsibility. Declared the Lord to this people, Wherefore be not weary in well-doing, for ye are laying the foundation of a great work, and out of small things proceedeth that which is great. Behold, the Lord requireth a heart and a willing mind. This is the essence of the matter, the heart and a willing mind. Speak to those who enact the regulations, the statutes, and the laws. Those in government on local, state, and national levels. Those who occupy positions of responsibility as administrators of our schools. Of course there will be some who will slam the door. Those who will scoff, discouragement may come. It has always been thus. 
Edmund Burke speaking on the floor of the House of Commons in 1783 declared concerning the advocate of an unpopular cause, he well knows what snares are spread about his path. He is traduced and abused for his supposed motives. He will remember that obloquy is a necessary ingredient in the composition of all true glory. He will remember that calumny and abuse are essential parts of triumph. The Apostle Paul, in his stirring defense before Agrippa, gave an account of his miraculous conversion while on the way to Damascus, declaring that the voice of the Lord commanded him to rise and stand upon thy feet. I think the Lord would say to us, Rise and stand upon thy feet and speak up for truth and goodness and decency and virtue. Finally, my fourth point of beginning. Strength to do battle begins with enlisting the strength of God. He is the source of all true power, declared Paul to the Ephesians. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Brethren and sisters, the tide of evil flows. It has become a veritable flood. Most of us living somewhat sheltered lives have little idea of the vast dimensions of it. Billions of dollars are involved for those who pour out pornography, for those who peddle lasciviousness, for those who deal in bestiality, in perversion, in sex and violence. God give us the strength, the wisdom, the faith, the courage to stand in opposition to these and to let our voices be heard in defense of those virtues which, when practiced in the past, made men and nations strong and which, when neglected, brought them to decay. God lives. He is our strength and our helper. As we strive, we shall discover that legions of good men and women will join with us. For this I humbly pray in the name of him of whom I testify, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.